You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 49 of the Common Descent Podcast. Woohoo, 49! Next episode is 50. We've done almost 50 of these things. That's so exciting. Today, we are talking about the subject of fake fossils. Ooh, controversial. Yeah, oh, it's going to be fun. (laughs) We're going to talk about what... Well, first, we're going to talk about what makes a fossil and what makes something not a fossil. We're going to talk about the phenomenon of fossil frauds, frauds and forgeries. And then we will discuss uh, some things that are called fakes but are not. (laughs) And then some of the most famous stories of fake fossils from the history of paleontology. Yeah, there's some of those uh, to live in infamy examples. Yes. So if I might borrow a phrase from our friend Ryan over at the Science Sort of podcast. This episode, we're going to talk about things that are fossils, things that are sort of fossils, and things that wish they were fossils. <laughs> yeah, that is that is absolutely the perfect way to intro this. <laughs> this episode was inspired by Cheryl on Patreon. Thank you, Cheryl. Yes, thank you. But before we get into that, a couple of quick announcements. As has been the case uh, for most of our recent episodes, we have a new patron to welcome. If you become a patron of a certain level on our Patreon, we'll shout your name out on the podcast. And we've had at least one almost every episode for a long time now, which is fantastic. Thank you all so much. It's so cool. Thank you. And this time, thank you to John. This is maybe like the third John we've had. But you know who you are, John. You're the new John. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) One other thing. As we announced the last couple episodes, we have a question submission form that will be in the link. There'll be a link in the description of this Mm -hmm. episode. It'll be on the social medias for an end of the year Q&A. Submit your questions and we'll put together a special recording for everybody where we're just going to do a mailbag episode. Yeah. We already got a lot of really good responses, so pile them on. We do. I've been thinking some of those are. It's going to be fun. (laughs) I'm excited. That's the announcements, which brings us to the news. News. There's news in paleontology and evolutionary science all year round. So each episode, we pick a couple of stories to discuss Will, what is there to talk about in the news? We have a new genus and species of sauropodomorph. Oh, that's cool. That's the best kind of morph. Yeah, these are cool. So this bit of news is about a recently named and described relative of the sauropods that is the earliest known to date. Oh, cool. Sauropods are those big, long-necked, yeah. long-tailed dinosaurs. The long necks. Yes. The research that we're discussing here was done by Mueller et al. in Biology Letters. And the news we're reporting from is written by Laura Gagel in Live Science. Now, the main researcher in this study is Mueller, who is a paleontologist in Brazil. And the reason I bring that up is because this story has an interesting beginning because it started with a call from his mom. 
(laughs) (laughs) Telling him that his uncle had found some fossils there in Brazil. Oh, cool. What paleontologist hasn't gotten that phone call? Right? Found this weird rock in the backyard. (laughs) And when he went to identify it, when he went to go look at this finding, discovered three specimens of sauropodomorph from the later Triassic about 225 million years ago, two of which had complete skulls, which is very rare for this group and from this age. Wow. So quite a find. (laughs) Go, Go, uncle. Yeah. Now, sauropodomorphs are... The group that contains sauropods and their ancestors and relatives. So all things sauropod and almost sauropod. And many of them wish they were sauropods. Wish they were sauropods. (laughs) And many of them, this group lasted from the Triassic all the way into the Cretaceous. Things things that are sauropods, things that are sort of pods, (laughs) and things that wish they were sauropods. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting way more mileage out of this joke than I expected. <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. Uh if we if we like put if we denoted best joke of the episode, I think that one would probably be on the top board right now. We're going to have to send Ryan royalties. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the cool things about this group is that many of the earlier members, the ancestors to sauropods, uh were actually bipedal and had Typically long-ish necks, but some of them had slightly to, you know, prominently elongated necks. The three specimens they found here had elongated necks, which is unique for how early they are in this family line, in this group's line. This new sauropodomorph was named Macrocolum Itaquii and established both a new genus and species for it. The name's kind of cool. It, genus combines macro and column, which is Latin to describe the elongated neck bones, vertebrae in the neck. And then Itaquiae is named for Joseph Herendino Mikado Itaquiae, who helped found the Center for Paleontological Research of the Fourth Colony, which is cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. So this new member is the oldest yet known of this group and has a fairly long neck. Now, evidently, there is a definition among those who research these dinosaurs for what elongated neck means, and it's defined by many of the researchers as necks that are about the same length as the trunk or the torso of the body. Oh, interesting. And so if your neck is almost as long as the bulk of your body, not including the tail, then... shoulders to hips. Yes. Then you have... An elongated neck. These have that. They're also fairly good size. They're about 11 feet long. Likely weighed uh, a little bit more than 200 pounds. So 3.5 meters, 100 kilograms around there. And they actually were bipedal. They had large thumb claws on their forward limbs. So they were using those for something. And the teeth suggest it was herbivorous, eating plants. But the author suggests that it likely could have supplemented some meat in there if it wanted to so it may have been partially herbivorous or omnivorous uh eating a little bit of both and that's basically what this dinosaur looks like they have a pretty good look at it since they have even complete skulls which is really interesting uh since that's not a common find with dinosaurs from this group because they have delicate skulls and it's old it's triassic which doesn't usually preserve that well 
One of the big things that stands out to the researchers about this is the fact that they have those elongated necks and are some of the oldest members of the sauropodomorph group. Uh, that means that these elongated necks were already being put into play early on, and they were already shifting toward that body design, which is, is right. not what you might have expected for the earliest member. Right, right. That they had, that they potentially, the long necks came before the giant bodies. Yes. They, they were saying, on average, uh, these new members have necks twice as long as the average, or many of the sauropodomorphs of the Triassic. So it was significantly elongated and resembled the necks of many of the sauropodomorphs found in the jurassic so oh it was ahead of its time it was ahead of its time uh they found the age by looking at the studying the bones and analyzing them and one of the cool things about this is there are suggestions that it may not have yet been full grown so these could have gotten bigger and since three were found together they might hint at a social behavior uh, others have pointed out that this doesn't oh. guarantee social behavior. They might have been there for like waterhole reasons or a trap of some sort. Right, right. But we might have a hint there and they're going to look at the environment to see if they can figure out a reasoning for why these might have gathered or if it seems that they were just together uh, just because. Very cool. Yeah. I what, That's super cool that the family members got to help describe, find those. Yeah. Discover those. That like... Because if I got a phone call from one of my family members and they're like, I think I found a dinosaur skull in my backyard. I <laughs> No, you didn't. Yep. Yep. <laughs> no, come on now. This is that's really neat. And I mean, d Triassic. Yeah. Fossil. And uh, new Triassic stuff is always exciting. It was just such a strange time. Absolutely. And, and this one's such a clear picture of this this new dinosaur. It's not like we got fragments. They got a pretty good collection. Very cool. Well, I might as well talk about my dinosaur news. <laughs> this is just all we do now. Let's yep. talk about dinosaur news. <gasps> this is a story about extremely tiny footprints. In <laughs> fact, the smallest dinosaur footprints ever found. Cool. This is a study by Kyung Soo Kim et al. in Scientific Reports. And we will be linking to the press release from University of Queensland. Largely because it comes with a video. This is little video explainer, and I love it, and you should check it out, and I'll talk about what's in the video in a second. But first, the deposit. These tracks were found in lake sediments from the Jinju Formation of South Korea. So these are early Cretaceous, about 110 million years old, known for having lots of footprints. Dinosaurs, pterosaurs, crocodiliforms, mammals. It was the, the Chinese theater of that time. This is where all the foot traffic was. That's <laughs> where they were all walking. Including enough good preservation. It's considered a lagerstatten, a place of exceptional fossil preservation, that they, people have found some very tiny tracks there, including dinosaur tracks up to, you know, as, as little as several centimeters long which is pretty small, which is pretty cool. But this paper describes a bunch of tracks from bipedal dinosaurs that left footprints approximately one centimeter long each. Gosh. These are the smallest described dinosaur footprints, certainly non-bird dinosaur footprints because they are not birds. <laughs> they have been assigned to a new ichnogenus, so in case you uh, have forgotten or haven't been listening to us in the past, as we've discussed before, when you describe an ichno fossil, a trace fossil, 
they tend to get their own species and genus names because you can't necessarily say this came from this particular species. So this has been given a new ichnogenus and ichnospecies, Dromaeosauriformipes rarus. And from the name, you may have surmised that (laughs) this has been assigned to a type of dromaeosaur. Dromaeosaurs are Deinonychus velociraptor, your quote-unquote raptor dinosaurs. And Will, do you know how you can tell a dromaeosaur footprint? Because it's only got two of the little toes? Yeah, because there's only two toes, because they hold one up. Yeah, they do. So they're didactyl tracks, two-toed tracks. Which means they had a little killing claw. Little tiny killing claw. (laughs) The authors describe these footprints as being similar to the feet of Microraptor. Okay. Which was a a raven-sized dromaeosaur dinosaur. From the size of the footprints, they were able to estimate the height of these little critters and estimated them to be about the height of a sparrow. And in the video, there's a little animation of a reconstructed little dromaeosaur walking past objects to give you a (laughs) sense of its scale, and it walks past a tennis ball, and it's about the size of the tennis ball. Oh my gosh. And it's about, it walks past a cell phone, like a, like a, like an iPhone or Mm -hmm. your, your square shaped cell phones these days. And it's about the size of that on its side. The short side. Gosh. (laughs) They found 18 total tracks, including two trackways, so several prints in a row, plus some isolated tracks that represent varying gates and speeds, so different ones moving at different ways. They're not sure if these are babies, or they could just be a really tiny species of dinosaur. Yeah. That's hard to tell from tracks. One of my favorite things about this, because I read through the paper itself, they mentioned this, that, you know, when you find tracks, you have to, okay, what was this from? Is this anything we've seen before? Does this belong to a known ichno species? <clears throat> the tracks are so small that when they were checking them against other known track makers, one of the categories they looked at was invertebrate tracks. <laughs> They're like, let's make sure that we're not mistaking these and they had to check it against invertebrates because they're super tiny footprints. <laughs> Just a really big bug. That's yeah. awesome. That's so cool. The thing I like about this, uh, tracks are always fun for me because we get a glimpse from a different point of view into the, the life and existence of this fossil creature. But I also like this because it, to me, further breaks down the perception that we so often have of dinosaurs that Dinosaurs were these large creatures that ruled the land, but the, no group that is dominant is that way. Like mammals aren't just right. big, you know, voles and mice are, you know, smaller than the palm of my hand and, oh, yeah. you know, they're golf ball sized. And so why wouldn't there be itty bitty dinosaurs running around? Now, these may be babies, uh, but if they're adults, why? Yeah. Why wouldn't there be little ones running around snapping up flies and, you know, living in shrubbery. Yeah. That's so cool. I love that they, they flesh out the picture of the ancient ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And footprints are so... And we've talked about this before, but footprints are so evocative. Mm-hmm. Like, you find a bone, and you're like, all right, this bone wasn't an animal, but footprint is, this creature walked here. Well, it's... And it ran over there, and it hopped over here, and you can... They're very dynamic. It's... Uh, I... For me, I think it's the difference between the fossils are this is what's left of you and footprints are this is something you did. This is yes. this is something this animal 
did while it was al- this happened while living. You know, the bones are definitely after death. You know, yes. And so there's no more action going on, and it's really cool. It is. It is neat. Well, my second bit of news. Uh, I talked about the earliest sauropodomorph. Now I want to talk about the latest and largest dicynodont. Uh, Dicynodonts? Hey, we talked about those in episode 47. Yeah, we did. So this is a new, recently discovered dicynodont that is the largest and most recent yet known found in Poland. Oh, cool. Yeah. The research is Sulej et al. in Science. And the news is Gretchen Vogel in Science Mag. As a refresher, for anyone who might have forgotten a couple episodes ago, Dicynodonts were a group of synapsids that just dominated things from the Permian to early Triassic. Right. Near mammals. Near mammals. mammals, but close. So these, these were probably relatives of our ancient ancestors. And... They are the name means two dog tooth because they had a, a beak and then two little tusks on either side. That was a, yeah. a defining thing of the group. And most of them were almost toothless because of this beak. They had a very turtle like mouth structure. These are very, very well known from the, this early time of the Mesozoic. And like I said, were one of the most dominant groups for a while there. But when the Triassic rolls around, they start to dwindle and dinosaurs start to take over or at least was the classic view but it, evidently some of them were not dwindling in fact they were growing lissowickia bojani is the new species of dicynodont discovered in clay deposits in poland it's not a complete specimen it has a few limb bones and other pieces but it's given them a couple of insights into the animal this is as i said the most recent dicynodont yet known, and the largest by quite a bit. <laughs> Most big dicynodonts got, you know, hefty size. Some of the biggest ones known before this were like hippo size, so like one and a half tons, which is big. Yeah. That's, this, I, today, hippos, rhino, like yeah, that's hippo rhino size, and that's absolutely. almost as big as it gets. This one's elephant sized. This thing's <laughs> massive. Estimated from the bones, four and a half meters long, so that's that's getting up to 13 feet, maybe 14 feet long, and 2.6 meters tall. So it would, it at its, you know, shoulders, it would be taller than your average human by a good bit. You know, it would mm-hmm. just be standing at on all fours, be taller than us, and likely weighed nine tons, which is as much as modern African elephants. That this has this is an important thing that needs to be stressed. <laughs> not nine tons is even big for a modern elephant. Yes, like that's not that's quite record breaking, but that's a big elephant. Mm-hmm. This is a ridiculously huge animal, and this is at the end of when the dicynodonts were supposed to be dwindling, when they were supposed to be giving way to the dinosaurs. And what this suggests is that the same pressures that were making dinosaurs starting to get big toward the mid to end Triassic as they were, seem to have been affecting some dicynodonts as well. That certain dicynodonts were also reacting and getting big, this one particularly. So they were, for a while, you had large dinosaurs and large synapsids walking the land, which is cool. It's very cool. Now, looking into the bones, we see some interesting things. 
the first thing that's noticed is they lack growth lines, typically seen in most dicynodont fossils. Uh, growth lines are things that typically indicate seasonal growth, growing faster when it's warm, slower when it's cold. It's the most common form of that. Or during wet season, dry season, you can see those things too. But that's pretty common in these this group. The fact that they're lacking suggests kind of one of three scenarios. Either it grew unusually fast early on, very much like sauropods show that they did, which is common in many large animals. So that is a very likely scenario. It might indicate that it wasn't yet fully grown, that <laughs> we haven't developed those years and years of lines because this thing was not up to full size, which is interesting. Or it might indicate that the lines have been erased after it was full grown and the bone was remodeled in adulthood, which is what happens in elephants. Right. And this would indicate a slower growth instead of a faster growth. So not yet sure what's going on there, but it was doing something interesting with its growth. And the limbs show that it had a slightly different walking gait than your other dicynodonts. Uh, dicynodonts are kind of weird. Once again, that, that mammal adjacent where they have some features that are kind of mammally and some features that are kind of not. Dicynodonts typically have legs in the back, the back legs that are underneath the hip, like mammals, where they are situated underneath the body. And then right, straight down. Front legs that are sprawled like a reptile's out to the side like we draw cartoon bulldogs. Yes. Which is kind of a weird position, but worked for them. This one, according to initial reconstruction, shows that the front legs were also oriented underneath. Now, some have uh. cautioned that it's hard to reconstruct posture without, you know, more tissue. But it, it suggested that it had a slightly different posture that may have been better for holding this extra weight of being so large. Right. They're columnar limbs. Yeah. So they hold up the body. More like a sauropod or an elephant. Even. Yeah. Or an elephant. And the final thing that's interesting about this is it may have grown large for the same reasons we think sauropods probably did, which is to avoid predators, because found in the same deposit was a five-meter-long predator, likely a dinosaur, that uh, could have been one of the main predators in this area. And we don't know if it's the coprolites for this one, but coprolites found with dicynodont bones inside. So dicynodonts were definitely being eaten by something. <laughs> there is definitely a large predator present, and that may have been why this one grew so big. It's so cool to think. First of all, elephant-sized dicynodon Woo! is insane. I just, I, this is a, this I is want a to write mammoth-sized dicynodon. I want to write it. It's, it would be and like as well. You should. Oh, it'd be so chunky, so much chunkier. <laughs> I feel like it wouldn't have been all tall. It would have just been bulky. Oh, it's cool. And that that classic story of you know the end of the Triassic, the dinosaurs were on the rise mm -hmm. and they forced out. The synapsids, and they forced out the other archosaurs and things like that. Here's a case where the dinosaurs on the rise were still at the end of the Triassic, arms racing. Yeah, with the synapsids. Like here's one that went. Well, the sauropodomorphs are getting huge. Mm -hmm. Let's do that too. I mean, but but for a different roll of the dice, we might have had a lineage of dicynodonts that made it through the Cretaceous. Oh you know, man, you made it through the Mesozoic. I mean, you know that could have built off of this big one. Uh, yeah, yes. it's it's so interesting how things might have gone. Which complicates then, of course, the question we tackled in episode 15 <laughs> of why in the Triassic extinction yeah. was it the one group of giant critters that survived and the other group did not? That's 
It's a hard question to answer. Mystery is deepened. Well, hey, let's get out of the Mesozoic for this last bit of news. In Fine. fact, let's move all the way to the late Pleistocene. Whoa. Only tens of thousands of years ago, and talk about Australia's bizarre carnivore. Yay! This is research that was actually presented at SVP in October by Larissa DeSantis, but it has been written about recently in Smithsonian by Brian Switek. Larissa's research investigated the diet of an extinct creature called Thylacoleo. Thylacoleo is more commonly known as the marsupial lion. It's not a lion. Not a lion. <laughs> it is a marsupial, however. This is one of a number... You know, it, during Australia's heyday of mammals in the Pleistocene... Well, heyday in the Pleistocene with all the cool big mammals, a lot of them... You know, marsupials diversified, and a lot of them got names like that. Yep. The marsupial wolf, the marsupial lion, the marsupial this and that. Just because, you know, we are placentals and we're very biased. Yes. So, you know what? You're so good, you're almost as good as a lion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but... The, the name is somewhat appropriate. Thylacoleo is very much like a cat in its general body shape, you know, very carnivorin. Mm-hmm. Has those, you know, carnivore teeth. Yeah. But it's weird because it's a marsupial. It's got a lot of unusual features, including its cheek teeth. Yeah. So in carnivorins, placental carnivora, uh, cats, dogs, etc., they have these, you know, rows of teeth along the cheeks, including what are called carnasials, which are sort of these big, extra big, extra sharp, shearing teeth yeah, they, on the sides. They meet up next to each other so that they actually cut along one another, but lets them yes. slice through meat. Thylacoleo, being a marsupial, did not have that. Instead, it had independently evolved these enormous, <laughs> ridiculous, square-shaped cleaver teeth. Wait, you said slice? I heard you say slice. They're just, it's like a hatchet. <laughs> it's insane. There has been some, a lot of question about what was Thylacoleo eating? Was it actually eating like a lion? Or, you know, was it doing its own thing? So this study examined microware and isotope data. Ooh, I love these. Microware is looking at microscopic wear on the teeth. Yeah, the mark, so it's like the things they show in the bullet casings and yes. detective shows <laughs> as you eat as you chew the food leaves marks and scratches and, and wear patterns on the teeth in carnivores you can typically tell where it is on that spectrum from hyena <laughs> which is crunching up bone to cheetah which is avoiding bone mostly and going for the softest flesh the microware on thylacoleo indicated that it was in fact similar to lions, that it was going for soft flesh, but still chewing up bone occasionally. All right. So a bit more of a selective eater, but not like, you know, just chowing down on anything that goes into its mouth. The isotope data, which is, so uh, you are what you eat. Different types of creatures, different types of foods have different ratios of elements in their bones, in their bodies. So when you eat them and you use those elements to build your body, you inherit that those ratios of elemental shapes, of elemental variants. It basically stains it. It becomes part of the structure. Yes, so you can test isotopes to see what they were eating or what environment they were living in. And in this case, it uh, 
the not only the isotopes but fossils found alongside thylacoleo fossils suggest that it was probably living in a forested environment Ooh. and larissa points out that if it was living in a forest based on sort of the body proportions of it thylacoleo may very well have been an ambush hunter not chasing down its prey right cheetah style wolf style but waiting tiger style right getting close lying in wait pouncing and trying to take something down quickly yeah and she added that this has potential implications for its extinction thylacoleo disappeared toward the end of the pleistocene around the same time that most of the big animals in australia and around the world were going extinct episode 25 pleistocene megafaunal extinctions and as we've discussed the back and forth on this is how much did humans play a role in this extinction and how much did the climate play a role yeah well the point being made here is that climate change in australia had in part one of the side effects was that forests decreased in lieu of more open arid environments the outback and it's possible that if you're an ambush hunter that relies on forest cover simply the removal of your prime hunting environment your your favorite terrain can be devastating and that maybe not not that it's a sure thing but that this may be a factor that hasn't been discussed previously and as australia dried out it drove uh thylacoleo out of its ideal situation its ideal habitat indeed interesting that's really cool i always like thylacoleo as an as a predator because it's got weird teeth it's got those big thumbs uh and it's interesting to think that it is not an animal that necessarily might be able to survive in modern day australia because there's not as many forests you know, when when you said forested that, that was like intriguing because that's yeah. not what you think of when you think of australia now that's that's very interesting yes yes well that's the news which means it's time for our feature presentation Woohoo! grab your popcorn we're gonna talk grab your popcorn uh there's gonna be stories <laughs> we're gonna talk about the frauds of the fossil world the phonies now before we get to talking about fake fossils i think we should take a moment and discuss real fossils yeah Uh, more more specifically and something we i think i don't think we've ever defined on the podcast i don't think so what is a fossil anyway yeah what what defines what character or what uh entails a fossil (laughs) yes and you may depending on how much you dive into scientific terminology you may or may not be surprised to hear that there isn't really a good definition for fossil yeah that's that's a very common question that we tend to get and you're like, what do you, what technically, the one I always get is how old does it technically have to be before it's a fossil? Yep. And that's always a hard one to answer because it's like, well, there's definitely norms, but there's not like, it's not like senior citizenship. You have to. <laughs> right, yeah. It's not like there's a card and yes. you can show your ID. <laughs> well, and there are, pe- there are definitions of fossil that you'll hear. Uh, some pe- Very broadly, a fossil is evidence of past life. Yeah. Something left behind 
because something was alive a long time ago. Right. But then the way that I uh, that my professors always like to phrase it is, does that make grandma a fossil? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so some people have attempted to define it based on age. And you'll hear some people say, well, the the one that I most commonly hear is 10,000 years. Yeah. Also, people say if it's older than 10,000 years, it's a fossil. You'll also hear people use the word subfossil oh, for yeah, things that. that are younger than that. Uh, some people I've heard use 2,000. I was talking with a friend recently who said that she prefers 2,000 years as the cutoff for fossil. I'm sure other people have other preferred ages. Mm-hmm. I'm always a little uncomfortable defining it based on age. Mm-hmm. Partially because it's very arbitrary. It's just an arbitrary cutoff. But also because that, if you if you put it at 10,000, then there are mammoths that aren't <laughs> fossils. Yes. Which is weird. And if you put it at 2,000, then there are things that lived with the Egyptians. Yep. <laughs> like, that, like, is, a, is an, a, a cat in a pyramid a fossil? And, like, it it's kind of wonky. Mm-hmm. Because we have an idea in our head of what to expect from a fossil. Well, it's kind of like when we did the birds episode. uh... Oh, episode 37. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, I'm not going until... I missed the hint there. Yeah, sorry. I I apologize. I'm not not continuing. (laughs) (laughs) I work those into my episodes now. I hope you know. Uh... Oh, I I love it. It's great. We should definitely do that. But it's kind of like when we did that where it's like, if you know, doing birds... It's, it's, you know, instead of saying avian dinosaurs, we all have an idea when you say birds. It's the same thing that we said when we did sharks, where it's like sharks are fish, but you don't think of sharks when I say fish. I think fossils right. kind of have that same thing where it's like when you say fossil, there's a particular thing that comes to mind. And it's all the things that come to mind when you say that don't fit within one definition very nicely all the time. Yep. The other way that people will often define it is based on how it's preserved. That's what I most commonly see. Yep. The word fossil literally means rock. Something that is fossilized is turned to rock. Permineralized. And so, yeah, some people argue that if it's not permineralized, it's not fossilized. Yeah. That if it's old enough to be permineralized, then there you go. You have a fossil. Mm -hmm. This makes me a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) And I... I'm not going <laughs> to offer up anything better here. I'm just I'm just pointing out inconsistencies. Yes. This one, first of all, because permineralization happens at different rates. Yes, it does, depending on what you're in. So you can get permineralization surprisingly quickly. And then you can have like the gray fossil site, mm-hmm. which is five million years old, but hardly permineralized. Yeah, it's enough to have changed the color and not much else. This also means that unaltered fossils like <laughs> frozen specimens yep. couldn't be considered fossil if you're very strict about that definition and more uncomfortably if i understand the the mode of preservation correctly amber yeah if it has to be permineralized and things in amber aren't permineralized and those can't be called fossils that's weird i i get a i, I just had an image of a fossil that you know preserved itself in amber and was like can't wait to be part of the club in 65 million <laughs> <And> years. <it's... laughs> this is baloney. This is ridiculous. What? I waited. I waited since the Cretaceous for this. I, I walked alongside Tyrannosaurus, sir. I knew him. <laughs> <laughs> Why does he get to be a fossil? <laughs> I should be on the list. <laughs> 
So trying to stick to a very strict definition of fossil is going to basically you're not going to make everybody happy. I'm not happy. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's old stuff from things that were alive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's basically the definition I go with. It's evidence of really old past life. Yes. Uh, You could go prehistoric, although that's also setting an age limit. Evidence of stuff from the past. Much like was was famously stated uh, in, a, I believe it was a court case about <laughs> pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. I, I know if you give me a fossil, I know it's a fossil. Yes, yeah. Uh, part of the confusion, of course, comes from the variety of forms of fossil. You can have, you know, obviously permineralization, mm-hmm. which happens when the flow of water deposits sediment deposits mineral inside of a preserved bone or tooth or something and starts replacing the original material with mineral transforms it into stone yep or fills in the gaps right fills in the the little holes between the cells and blood vessels and things like that uh, effectively petrifying it yeah you can get molds which are impressions like footprints or a sh- you know a place where a shell sat. You can get casts, which are filled in molds. Which are some of my or, favorites. Oh, they're super cool. Because it's a shell sat here, sediment filled that mold, and now you have a bunch of sediment in the shape of your shell. Mm-hmm. My favorite version of that is endocasts. That's, yes. That's the one I like the best. Where Those the sediment good. fills in the, thing. the fossil. <laughs> <laughs> the shell or the skull, and you get a shape of the interior of it. Yeah, that's cool. You can get carbonization, these sort of compression films. That That's usually what you see with leaf fossils, where they were compressed between layers, and you have this dark, uh, filmy press of a leaf mm-hmm. in between the stone. You can get those unaltered specimens we talked about, like amber and ice. So fossils are super diverse. They come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and forms and chemical makeups and this can make it not only difficult to define fossil not only as anyone who's ever gone fossil hunting can attest (laughs) difficult to identify fossil Mm -hmm. but it can make it very confusing when you're getting into the subject of fossil fakes yeah at what point is something fake how much does something need to be altered yes to be fake now, we're going to talk about that in a moment, <laughs> but first, I want to take a little detour and talk about things that are not fakes. This is our PSA. This is, this is, <laughs> this, David's going to rant for a few minutes here. <laughs> there, the word fake gets thrown around a lot with fossils. Sometimes you'll hear it used sort of just in the general public conversation. Mm-hmm. Other times you'll hear it used more offensively against the science. Yeah, accusingly. Acu- it's, yeah, you get a lot of these accusations in cases where they are, I, I maintain, <laughs> not warranted. Here's a story. <laughs> I don't remember if I've told this story on the podcast before. I might have. Here it is again. Uh, several years ago, I was working for a science center up in New York, and I was doing an outreach. And as part of this outreach, I was doing presentations with fossils. And a crowd had gathered, and I had a box of fossil casts and stuff that I had brought around. And I started out the presentation by holding up this T-Rex tooth cast. 
This is a replica of two T-Rex teeth. You've probably seen it. This replica is very popular. Yeah. And I was holding it up and I was starting to explain it to the crowd. And I would say, oh, this is T-Rex and these are the teeth and yada, yada, yada. And there was a kid standing right in front of me as this group was gathered around. And I, my memory has, has taken from me what this child actually looked like. But in, in my mind's eye, when I relate this story, he looks like the kid from the opening sequence say, of Jurassic Park. He's, he's your six-foot turkey kid. <laughs> he's the six-foot turkey kid. So picture that. <laughs> so um, I'm, describe, I'm telling people about this fossil, and this kid's standing. He's probably like 10. He's standing in the front of the crowd going, fake, fake, fake. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Now... I used this as a teaching moment <laughs> and explained, as I will now, what replicas are. Yes. I get this in the museum all the time. People point, they go, so are these fake? Like, mm-hmm. No, they're not fake. They're replicas of fossils. They're not fake any more than a statue of George Washington is a fake George Washington. Exactly. It's a likeness. It's a model. It's a representation. It, it's it's uh, the way I often think of them is a placeholder where the real thing, we, we don't want you breathing on that. So right. <laughs> so this one is going to take its place whilst the other one is kept under literal lock and key. Yes. And the big difference for me is the intent. Absolutely. Right. When I hold up a fossil cast, a fossil replica, or you go to a museum and there's a big dinosaur skeleton, it, at least it should be most of the time, is very upfront. This is a replica. Mm-hmm. If there's a replica on display in a museum, it should say it on the plaque. If it doesn't, then they should change the plaque. Like the sign should say, this is a cast. This is a replica. This is a model of the original fossil. Yeah. There's no intent. It's not counterfeit, right? There's no intent to deceive here. It's just, this is a likeness so that you can see what it's like while we can keep the original safe. We can keep it in its storage. We can keep mm-hmm. it out of the light, out of out of hands and such. Now... We make replicas in a number of interesting ways that also tie into our later conversation. <laughs> uh, most of the time when we use replicas uh, these days and for a long time has been casting and molding. Yep. Right. So just the same way those fossils are formed. Right. You get your fossil, you put it in a vat of liquid rubber or something. This is how the Graysite uh, makes all their molds is with silicone rubber. Yeah. And when the rubber solidifies around the fossil you cut it open and you take the fossil out you have this hole in the shape of your original fossil you fill that as many times as you want with liquid plastic resin and it hardens into a cast a replica of the original Uh, sometimes you can also uh, some people will sculpt replicas Mm -hmm. so basically eyeballing it benefit of the doubt skilled people doing this so that it is as close as possible although that's not always the case sometimes casts can get a little bit weird (laughs) a little too too much artistic license we have a a bunch of red panda replicas the skull Mm -hmm. at the gray site and a couple of them are sculpted and they're weird yeah (laughs) you can tell they're not it's a little bit strange yep and then of course these days the big new thing is 3d printing yeah so there's a lot more 3D printing in replicas. And these are all ways to model the likeness of a fossil for display purposes, for education purposes. The, they're not, and I ins- I don't even use the word real when I talk to people about fossils. Mm-hmm. When I'm giving tours and stuff, I say original fossil material. I'll say 
like these this is the fossil straight from out of the ground or mm-hmm. something i i don't even like saying those are real fossils yeah because it the opposite of real is fake and they're not fake they're models they're representations all right my rant is over the, the way i've said it sometimes this is the actual fossil this is the replica of the fossil like this this is the original the the you know o one uh yes the, well, then the, the reason for replicas in big part is not only for display purposes and going back to that intent is it's not to make you think you're looking at the fossil. You know, we'll happily tell you it's a replica. We'll happily tell you what it's made out of. You know, we'll g- go down to the material. We don't that doesn't bother us because it's as accurate a copy as it can be. But the other really big thing about this is it allows us allows a institution to share a fossil. Yes. Many fossils are one of a kind. You know, there's some that oh, yeah. are all over the place. You know, we, we are uh, uh, drowning in turtle fossils at the Gray Fossil Site. But you know, <laughs> our red panda, there are no other of that red panda anywhere else in the world. So we have two skulls. If we go shipping that around, that just increases the likeliness that it gets lost, stolen, shattered or damaged at some right. point in its trips. You don't get to see that skull up close. Yeah. That it has to stay safe. And so the general public can't see it. And so if if someone wants to research the real skull, they need to like actually get to the bone. They're doing a chemical analysis. They're doing a, you know, something that requires the real material. They can come to the museum. But if they're just needing to do measurements, well, we can make a copy of the skull and mail it to you. It'll have the Mm -hmm. exact measurements. It'll have the same textures. But it, if it breaks, oh, okay, you know, 30, 50 bucks. That's, that's a priced item, not a priceless item. And even more importantly, for the public, like this is your opportunity to see it. Yes. So th- th- it's, it's a beneficial arrangement. Everybody gets to hopefully benefit from it. There's no deception involved. Yeah, it's, yeah th- and that's the big thing is it's not deception. Uh, that's what I think people expect is that... Yeah. We don't want them to know it's a a replica because that cheapens it. And for some people it does, which I've never quite understood. But yeah, I I, I mean, I it's the same reason that like it's more exciting when the movie prop you're looking at was from the actual movie and not a replica of the movie prop. Yeah. Even though it's not like you're going to find a piece like you're not going to find the fingerprint of the person, the actor in it. It's just right. It's someone has that feeling to a, it a, pa- a well, piece of paper told you it was held by so and so in front of a camera and i get that and i even play that up when yeah. i'll show people like okay i showed you a few casts here's actual fossil yes like here's one that i that we're that we can pass around that's different that's really cool that is i better I, yeah it's better than seeing a cast is to see the original something and special they they have a a texture and a and a and a weight to them that really is significant. But I think that I I, peop, I think people come in expecting them all to be the authentic fossils. Yes, and so they're disappointed when they're not. Mm-hmm. And I think that it it's important to note that you're going to see a mixture and that it's that's the best way to do it. This is this is for your benefit. It's mm-hmm. not we're not trying to pull one over on you. And a lot of museums uh, nowadays, especially. If if you're looking at something that's a, a original fossil material and not cast or replica, it's usually behind acrylic. It's usually behind glass. Yep. That's what it is at Gray. Mm-hmm. Everything that's original on display is behind glass. Because my joke at the beginning was not a joke. We don't want you breathing on it. Oh, no. 
that that would actually hurt it over time. <laughs> or the light can damage yeah. it over time. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, replicas, not fakes. Yes. The other category of fossils that I often hear called fakes that aren't are <laughs> mistakes. This comes up a lot, and this is one that's that's used more accusatorily. Yes. This is one that you'll hear a lot, especially from people who are trying to discredit the science. You get this a lot from anti-evolution crowds of, here's a story, they completely made it up, and it, well, it was just a mistake. Yeah. Not the most famous example of this uh, in that vein is Nebraska Man. Dun, Do you know dun, the story dun. of Nebraska Man? I know bits. I actually haven't gone through and read the whole thing, so yeah. I know bits. Uh, Nebraska Man was so so. This fossil was found in Nebraska in 1917. It was a single tooth, right? One tooth, and it was sent to uh, Osborne Henry Fairfield Osborne, uh, who uh, at the American Museum of Natural History. And in 1922, he named it, uh, gave it a name, identified it as an ape tooth, mm -hmm. named mm -hmm. it Hesperopithecus Harold Cookeye, the first ape from North America. How exciting. Yeah, that's a big find. People started talking about it. Some people said no, and some people were like, very cool. It s sparked a lot of discussion about, oh, apes in North America. That's kind of neat. It became popular in the press, particularly when a British tabloid magazine published an artist's rendition of Nebraska Man yeah. as this sort of Cro-Magnon, like, caveman kind of creature. Yep, that's and, the part I've, I've seen. Yep. Even Osborne was like, no, we have a tooth. <laughs> like, looks like an ape tooth. We definitely don't know anything else about it. Definitely can't say that it is a human ancestor. Like, that's overstepping a bit. It's the equivalent to in those those crime dramas when they have a blurry photo and they go, enhance. Enhance. Yes. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just do that. It's like, all right, well, why don't we just zoom out from the picture and see what's around it? That's not how it works. Yes. <laughs> you can't zoom out from the tooth and just figure out what it was. <laughs> Uh, it even got caught up in, in discussions leading up to the Scopes trial. Oh, wow. In defense arguments about human evolution. Uh, and then, years later, turns out, not an ape tooth. It was actually a peccary. Yeah. Uh, peccaries are North America's answer to pigs. They're not pigs, but they're close relatives. I like peccaries better. Uh, and now, this may seem ridiculous, but ape teeth and pig and peccary teeth look shockingly similar yes especially in a worn down old fossil yes now it's not incorrect perhaps to say that maybe osborne was hasty in naming the fossil that maybe people went off speculating more than they should have absolutely but this fossil pops up online in all sorts of lists of hoax fossils or right. fake fossils and it's it's not. It was an error, an honest mistake. Maybe a careless mistake, depending on how much you like Osborne. We're not saying fingers can't be pointed. Right. But it's not a it's not a fraud. It was an error. Yes. This comes up all the time with Brontosaurus. Yes. Where people are like, Brontosaurus never even existed. Turns out they just made it up. No, we just changed the name. Yep. It, the, the skeleton that was called Brontosaurus still exists. We still have it. We just decided that it better fit a different name. 
Well, it's if you see That's a snake is. in your backyard and call it a cobra, and then someone identifies it as a garter snake, that doesn't mean cobras don't exist. <laughs> like, <laughs> you didn't make up cobras. Yeah. <laughs> you and Billy talking about. Co- didn't I just tell you to quit making up animals? <laughs> <laughs> it's just you. You named it wrong. It's it, it a mistake. We make errors. Every organization does. The thing that always gets me about whenever stuff like this happens is every organization makes glaring mistakes at some point you know mm-hmm. but like when a bridge collapsed people aren't like construction workers don't know what they're doing i all like it's always weird to me how how these get just held on to for so long and just well, won't be let won't won't be let loose as just a oops in history well sometimes it is just it became the popular thing to say yeah like brontosaurus is one of those but other times it's yeah if you are it's used in an attempt to discredit yes. and sometimes used disingenuously. Uh, another one that I've seen pop up on fake fossil lists is Amphicelius. Oh, Amphicelius right. fragilimus, which is very famously uh, a a single vertebra that was described by the, the legendary Edward Drinker Cope that if the based on the sizes he reports in his notes would have been like twice the size of the largest sauropod dinosaur <laughs> that we know. It would have been like 200 feet long or something. It's ridiculous. But the original fossils don't exist. Like they were either destroyed or lost or like no one ha- no one can see those. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if maybe his measurements were wrong or like, we-, we can't verify whether or not that's true mm-hmm. and i guess it's possible that he made it up I, cope was a controversial figure it's possible that it, this was fraudulent it's one of those where we don't have evidence for or against whether this was a mistake genuine or hoax right but it's certainly not a proven like it's more likely this is an error or that he found it and we're missing a 200 foot sauropod which would be pretty <laughs> insane that would be that would be very disappointing if we don't find it again. <laughs> <laughs> but you do sensationalizing or anti-science, anti-paleo, anti-evolution uh, uh, voices will often pick up mistakes or or uh, I've seen Pachycetus called a hoax. Yeah. Because the original reconstructions of it reconstructed it not the way it turned out looking. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was supposed to be a transitional whale. Turns out they were wrong. No, I, we just reconstructed it. In, we guessed wrong, and then we fixed it later. Well, it's it's the to me it's uh, going back to our cryptozoology episode. We talked about people misidentifying or misjudging sizes of animals they see, which is rife. Yep. Like multiple, multiple things have shown that we're terrible at judging the size of things at a distance. <laughs> Like, yes, the fish was this big. Yeah, it's it's really difficult when you when something's at a distance and on a especially in in the water when it's on a flat thing without something right next to it to compare. It's really hard for us to judge the size of that thing accurately. We think we're good at it, but we're actually not. But a lot of the times when people report, no, I've seen a twenty foot alligator. So, well, you didn't. But I don't think you're <laughs> trying to trick me. I think you probably genuinely believe you did. This right, isn't right. a 20-foot alligator hoax. This is a mistake. You m- mistook something as a much bigger alligator than it likely was because we've never, ever found one that big. But I don't think you're a liar. You're just a little overzealous. Fake fossils, hoax fossils, fraudulent forgeries. 
are fossils that are intended to deceive. Cases where you are, for whatever reason, trying intentionally to trick people. Where a lie was told. So let's talk about those. <laughs> How do you make a fake? Uh, fake fossils are all over the place. The, like, the, they're not the rule. They're exceptions mm -hmm. to fossil finds, but they are quite common. And we'll talk about some of the reasons why they get made in a little bit. But first, let's discuss construction. One of the most common ways to forge a fossil is to... Car you can you can carve pieces obviously you can make your own thing yes you can carve stone to look like something uh sometimes there are some cases where people will crush up bone or crush up rock or even crush up actual fossil yeah and then shape it mm -hmm. into something that is more interesting uh sometimes people will cast fakes the same way we make replicas, you can make a mold of that looks like a fossil and then make casts out of resin. Mm -hmm. uh, these often will leave little air bubbles if they're not careful with it, yep. which you do not see in authentic fossils. One of the most common ways that false fossils, that, that, that uh, fraudulent fossils are made, is actually mixing and matching real fossils. Yeah. So you'll see that someone has found a couple pieces of a few different creatures and stick them together to look like one whole thing. So they're using real fossil, but they're being deceptive with how they're putting it back together. They're making literal chimeras. Yes. They're taking the parts of multiple animals and bringing them in to look like a singular creature. Yep. Other, there are cases where people will combine false pieces with real pieces. Yeah. So they'll have real fossil and then they'll sort of sculpt the connection pieces. Add some flourishes. Yeah, or <laughs> add features like you have a fossil, let's carve some feathers into the sediment yeah. next to it to look like fossils. Uh, amber can be faked. Uh, there are stories of people cutting amber open, carving out a little space inside, dropping a bug in there, mm -hmm. and then gluing it back together yep. so that it looks like you have a bug in amber. There are many very clever and crafty ways to create fraudulent fossils. Now, oftentimes, and probably almost, I, I, it must be the vast majority of times, the reason people are doing this is for money. What? I, sometimes people do bad things to get money. Even when they know it's not good? Even, <laughs> even <laughs> listen, sorry, children who are listening. Sometimes people are bad. Uh, there are some parts of the world that are actually really famous for commercial fakes. <laughs> that are good at it. That, yeah, well, no, <laughs> yeah. Actually, absolutely. There are people yeah. that are really good at it. Um, Moroccan trilobites are a very famous oh, case yes, of this. Yes, Where Morocco is so rich in trilobites that digging up and selling trilobites has become, in some places, a legitimate part of the economy. And, when, and so naturally, there are people who specialize in faking trilobite fossils uh or even there are people who will make replicas to sell them just mm -hmm. replicas like yeah. hey i made a replica of a trilobite and there are some people who will buy the replicas <laughs> and then turn around and sell them as real fossils yeah yeah paint them up or whatever and then say oh here you go um china these days is very famous for this uh cases where you have extremely rich deposits 
that produce particularly dinosaurs in, in China, places yeah. like Liaoning, where you have really cool dinosaur fossils. And a lot of times they're found by farmers or by, you know, rural folk yeah. who are incentivized to turn them in. Like, hey, you can bring this to a museum, uh, you, you know, bring it to somebody who could use it. And it's not a secret that you will get more money from a dealer than from a museum. Yep. And so sometimes people will fake fossils so that they can then sell them to dealers who can then turn around and sell them, you know, on the black market kind of thing. Yeah. Usually these are aimed at the general public, right? You want to sell fossils, you're selling them to people who are collectors. That's, I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the tourist thing of, no, no, I promise you, this is a genuine arrowhead. From, yes. It's, yeah, it's that, that tourist mentality of you, you're getting something and they convince you enough and you buy it yep but they can end up s swirling around and ending up in museums yeah uh ending up in collections this is a problem again in china because paleontology has kind of been sweeping the country in recent decades they're having their boom so right now yep so there are more museums than there are experts to be in those museums <laughs> so sometimes fakes get up and i don't want to i said morocco i said china these are problems all over the world. Oh, yeah. I don't want to make it seem like this is ch the Chinese are making fake. No, it, this is everywhere. There are some places where it has become recently famous, but they're certainly not the only ones. Over here, big shark's teeth and stuff like that are, are popular targets because everywhere wants to be able to sell a big megalodon tooth and everyone wants a big megalodon tooth. Yep, yep, yep. In other cases, you'll have fossils faked for personal reasons for professional reasons there is a famous case of a, a man from india named vijay gupta who published a lot of papers on fossils before it was discovered that he was stealing fossils <laughs> from parts of the world and then claiming to have found them oh. other places so effectively planting fossils yeah it, he was extending ranges by yes. stealing <laughs> Uh, and there are other examples right up to the modern day of fossils being falsified or falsely described. Or if you take a scan of something and you claim that there are features that there aren't actually features in the thing and you're misrepresenting your fossil. That does happen. Again, exception yes. rather than the rule. That's why we pay so much attention to these because they're uncommon. Yep. And then there are some times where people... uh will create fake fossils not for like advancing science reasons but for advancing an agenda yeah uh we talked in the mermaids episode yep about the the fake mermaid the fiji mermaid uh, that was a chimera of creatures mm -hmm. uh there have been cases at least one case of a an ancient giant like a, a human giant that was sculpted oh right and yeah. then tried to be passed off uh there are cases of fake human footprints carved in association with dinosaur footprints to try to demonstrate uh to try to discredit the ancient age of the earth mm -hmm. and us crazy evolution folks yep so sometimes they're meant to deceive more than just one person or a community of people but the world sometimes you're trying to you know, put put an idea out there yep. with your fakery. Fortunately, 
there are many ways that professionals have to spot fake fossils. Um, if you know what you're looking for, you could tell by the color based on uh, what kind of material it might be made of, or you can tell based on the anatomy of the creature it's supposed to be representing. Uh, most forgers are not experts in anatomy, so they'll get details wrong. Mm-hmm. Signs of how it was made, like the bubbles and the resin or shapes that shouldn't be found in fossils, but you'll find when things are carved or something like that. And these days, we've got all sorts of chemical tests. We can do x-rays and CT scans, uh, which will usually reveal sort of where the seams are yeah. in these these forgeries. But every now and then, they, some slip through. Yeah. Uh, and we need to be very careful. And scientists are learning more and more to be cautious with these. One really interesting example, a quick one, before we get into the big stories is there was a, a case of an, a fly in amber. I, I mentioned before that you Split. cut open amber, you put it in there. Uh, one of those that was purchased most likely by a, a collector in the 1800s and then later sold to the British Museum. Yeah. This collection of hundreds of insects, in uh, hundreds of, of specimens, including these insects in amber. And then in the 60s, this one specimen was described by a scientist who said, Wow, look, this 40 million year old fly looks just like the living species. <laughs> and then a couple decades later, another scientist looked at it and went, oh, OK, this is not real. Yep. So they they can every you know, someone aiming to make a quick buck can inadvertently get in the way of science. So we oh, have yeah. to be very careful. Well, and it makes sense if you think about it from the point of view of, you know, you you did not come to this specific one you this researcher may have been describing dozens of specimens which happens very often where it's like all right you know pours box on table here are all of the yet to be described bugs in amber we have at our museum right go to town and if if a museum handed you all these because they accidentally got it from someone who accidentally got tricked then you're not expecting to find a fake. And so when you just come across it, you're looking at it like you've been looking at all the other ones, just expecting a fossil. You know, that it's yep. if you're not looking for it, a lot of times you may not see it. It's it's very much that uh optical illusion sort of thing where it's really easy to hide something if I'm not looking for it. Yeah. And so they can get in the way of science. And I think that circling back around, the prevalence of fake fossils also certainly contributes to the mindset that people bring with them when they walk into a museum. Yeah. And they say, well, I know people fake these. I know that you try to pull one over on me and I don't, I am not an expert. I don't know well enough necessarily to spot it. So I'm, I'm skeptical, right? I'm on the lookout and that sucks. It does. Well, and, and when, when they come into a museum, when we start trying to explain what a replica is and what it means, to someone who might already be suspicious, that sounds like a really good sell. You know, yeah, it sounds like we're just really smooth at it, and we're just <laughs> we're just we have perfected the way to make it sound believable. You know, it is the truth. That's why it sounds that way. But if you're a suspicious person because of something like this, then you may just be like, "Yeah, that sure does sound convenient." Uh, yeah. So can you point the real one out to me? No. All right then. I think we're done here. Yeah. yeah it's. <laughs> It's hard. It's 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 hard to undo the damage that a lie does. 
especially one yeah. like this where there's only so many experts in the world that study fossils and they're supposed to be the ones that are telling all the rest of the world about fossils and if they get duped every now and then that makes a much stronger signal than it really should but it does fortunately this is unusual yes uh fossil fakes are common it is very unusual it erodes trust yeah in the science it can it can erode science but it is very very rare that a fake fossil is so successful that it legitimately makes an impact in science mm -hmm. and for the rest of the episode we're going to talk about some of the times that they did yeah <laughs> So I have chosen three of the most famous fossil frauds in history, and we're going to go through them chronologically and talk just a showcase of what can happen when fossil frauds actually get so overblown that they make a mark. Yay. And the first story, we're going to go all the way back to the 1700s and talk about Beringer's Lügensteine, which is German. Uh, for lying stones. Hey, and they're named correctly. <laughs> Johann Bartholomew Adam Beringer was a physician to royalty in Würzburg, dean of medicine at Würzburg University, and a fossil collector in the 1700s, early 1700s. Uh, like most academics back then and today, he liked to collect novelties and, and natural curiosities and things. Uh, but he didn't only go out and collect them himself. He would also pay people to go out and get fossils for him. Yeah. Now, this particular fraud is not a case of somebody trying to make a quick buck, but, at least apparently, of a personal vendetta. Ooh, In 1725, intrigue. yes, two of his academic colleagues, Roderick and Eckhart, uh, seeming, seemingly plotted to uh, uh, deceive him and arranged for him to be brought by his boys who fetched the fossils, and to find a bunch of really interesting fossils from nearby sediments. These stones came to be known as iconoliths. Uh, lith meaning rock, and icon meaning image or picture. Many of these were positive reliefs, uh, which is to say they were carved into, you know, the shape was carved, the stone was carved into that shape. A few negative impressions, so they were carved like tracks or, or molds. These depicted plants and animals, some with soft tissue like their eyes still there, and spider webs and eggs. What's really fascinating about these fossils is that looking at them with modern eyes, they are very obviously fake. <laughs> yeah. They're just terrible like they've got features in there that would never preserve they are often ridiculously complete <laughs> like it's just a whole spider <laughs> just carved into the stone um sometimes oftentimes they're also not very specific in their features so it's like a 10 year old drew a picture of a bird <laughs> or of a spider so it just it looks like a cartoon drawing of a creature 
Uh, some of them are carved into behaviors. So there are some of the iconolists depict animals in the process of eating other animals. Yeah. Or in the process of copulating with each other. So just all these ridiculous things. <laughs> you can you can just picture them snickering as they were making those. <laughs> They're like, yeah, <laughs> make make some of them have sex. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just <sighs> very intriguingly. Uh, some of them included depictions of heavenly bodies, stars and planets and stuff. Interesting. And uh, some of them included Hebrew letters carved into them. Now, like I said, sitting here in 2018, looking at these, you say, okay, well, that's obviously ridiculous but in 1725 paleontology had not really coalesced as a modern science yet yeah this guy was not a paleontologist not in the you know there weren't really fossil experts the way there are today Mm -hmm. and there was still a lot of discussion over how fossils actually formed you know what should we expect them to look like and some people including this guy entertained the thought that fossils were divine creations yep so seeing hebrew letters and heavenly bodies carved into these stones fit some of behringer's own personal thoughts about how fossils might be formed uh this is a trend we're gonna see in these stories that these fakes were came about at a at the right time yeah to sort of capture the zeitgeist Uh, They also probably fed into his ego. He was very happy to receive these and to be the person that got to see them and describe them. And uh, I I believe I read somewhere that he is reported to have said that he was divinely chosen to receive Uh, these fossils. Yep, that'll do it. As soon as someone starts throwing around that kind of term, uh, (laughs) usually it's going to go downhill pretty quick. Yeah, well, and apparently one of the, the reasons cited why these two dudes decided to trick this guy is because they just didn't like him because <laughs> they thought he was a jerk. <laughs> so so I guess he was also kind of a jerk, I and mean, maybe that's fed into it. When people go to that much effort just because you're a jerk, that's, that's, that's kind of impressive. <laughs> you man, Yeah, that's a... Well, and speaking of effort, this wasn't like a handful of these. It is estimated that over the course of 1725, they created over a thousand (laughs) of these falsified fossils. This is what they were doing over drinks. They were just hanging out, carving up a a quote unquote fossil. Yeah. And just being like, all right, all right, what next? What What haven't we done this month? This is what this is like. There was no Netflix. Yes. <laughs> there was no movie cinema. There were no cinema to go to. Uh, what are we gonna do tonight? Want to carve up some fossils and trick Johan? Yep. Well, and the funny thing is, looking at images of them, uh, if you were to hand me one of these, uh, I would absolutely never believe it was a fossil. But you could, you might be able to trick me that it was an artifact, which is kind of funny to me. Like. Yeah, these look like they actually, might be because it's carved. Yeah, that they might be carvings of ancient people, and I, I, I am not an archaeologist, so I don't have a way to discern <laughs> recently or old carvings. But it, it's it's kind of funny because when I first looked at them, I'm like, uh, I my brain had a moment where it's like, oh, these these are artifact hoaxes. Oh no, they're just really bad fossil hoaxes, uh, which is now, so interesting. Now. The reason we know about this is because in 1726, 
Berenger decided that he had to share these with the world, and he wrote a publication <laughs> called the Lithographiae Wurzenbergensis, in which he it includes pictures and describes over <coughs> 200 of them. Wow. And he goes on at length about how cool they are and discusses where they might have come from, how they might have formed, what they might mean. One of the sentences that I found uh, pulled out of his book uh, is one of those. Th it's so fitting that I, I, I might want to double check the <laughs> authenticity of this. Quote, the figures expressed on these stones, especially those of insects, are so exactly fitted to the dimensions of the stones that one would swear they are the work of a very meticulous sculptor. End quote. Oh, uh, poor guy. Berenger, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I didn't even know uh, any better, I'd say these were made by someone. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> like, they were carved just for me. Now, shortly after the book was published, uh, he discovered there was a hoax. Uh, there is a story. Now, this story is probably... It might be apocryphal, which is a word that means BS. <laughs> that after that, that that his fossil finder, that his students, that that the dudes or whoever did, presented him one last rock that had his own name carved into it, <laughs> and that was how he realized the hoax. That may or may not be true. That may just be a way, regardless a really fancy way to call him dumb. Yeah. Regardless, it was discovered. He was ashamed. Um, he was disgraced by this. But perhaps not as much as the two guys, because he brought criminal charges against them <laughs> for deceiving him. And apparently they were uh, sh disgraced in their field more so than he was. Yeah. And that's as well. They should be absolutely. like, yeah, you're the forgers, you jerks. Well, that just, just quick aside on that. That's something that I, I've had people ask before on like, what, what do you do if a paleontologist lies about a thing? And disgracing is kind of the only, like, you know. Yeah, you tell everybody. Yeah. It's, like, hey. it's illegal to lie. And, you know, that's the reason we have false advertising laws and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's legality to it. But it's not like we can go in and rip their diploma off the wall, you know. But yeah. we can just all stop working with them. Yeah, and make that's sure everybody knows. kind of what happens. And it sounds harsh, and it is, and it should be. Uh, but that's well, basically yeah. what happens is they lie and we all go all right good luck ever working with any institution or person again goodbye yep and that's it yep. and they're just out of the society and this story you know we we tell this story you know jovially because it's so old yeah and the fossils are so ridiculous they're cute and the story is just so over the top like the whole thing is so over the top but i mean no some a bunch of people lied and got a publication put out there once again, you could point fingers at carelessness, but no, this, this, it's not a great thing to do and it's good that they were discovered and it's good mm -hmm. that they, they, they should indeed be punished. But it. it can show how long something potentially, like, it's not like they just did one or two that they, you can go quite a while if it's not caught. Yeah, they were committed. <laughs> yes. Speaking of fossils that can go quite a while, Oy. the next story is of the most famous Fossil fraud in history. Absolutely. This is the story of Piltdown Man. Dun da da. Dun da brown. <laughs> so, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, 
It was a time where paleontologists and paleoanthropologists, though I don't know if they used that word at the time, had been finding a lot of really interesting ancient humans. This is shortly after Darwin published On the Origin of Species, and evolutionary science was sort of coalescing gradually into its modern form. So people were on the lookout for fossils that would support this claim of humans evolving from the apes. Yeah, they were now looking for evidence, hard evidence. Yep, and then we found, right, there were Neanderthals, there was Homo heidelbergensis, there were some fossils found that of showing some bits of human evolution. Enter a man named Charles Dawson, a British amateur archaeologist in 1912, brought some fossils to the attention of ichthyologist and keeper of geology at the British Museum, Arthur Smith Woodward. These fossils, which Dawson claimed to have found uh, in Sussex, and then they both went out, I believe, and found some together in Sussex, included jaws, teeth, and parts of the skull of an ancient human. They were also associated with some tools, ancient tools, and a big slab of bone that had carvings in it. Oh, yeah, this yeah, big yeah. slab of bone uh, became known as the cricket bat, because it looked like a cricket bat, because <laughs> these are British. <laughs> That's fantastic. These finds were very exciting, the men noted, because it had ape-like jaws and teeth, but a human-like cranium. The bits of the cranium were very much like modern humans. The jaws and teeth bits that they found were very much like, you know, chimps and things you expect from apes. A, a perfect so, mid-stage. Mid, uh, yes, a transitional fossil. Very exciting. It was exciting and, and appealing for a couple of reasons. First, that it fit this idea that the, you know, intelligence, right? The large brain case was something that would have evolved early on in human evolution, which was an idea that was prevalent at the time. And, and I think we would be remiss not to mention this, there was a bit of nationalistic pride mm-hmm. there, not only in finding, you know, oh, hey, a, a great human ancestor here in our own country of of England, and it, it would become known as the earliest Englishman. Yeah. But also that, hey, wouldn't we all rather be descended from Europeans rather than Africans and Asians? Because this is the early 1900s. And those are the kinds of things that people thought. Minds are closed. <gasps> yes. <laughs> this fossil was presented at a geological society meeting and given the scientific name Eoanthropus Dawsoni, but it became colloquially known as Piltdown Man. Yeah. Estimated Piltdown was a, a the region near where it was found. Estimated to be about five hundred thousand years old. And then later, Dawson uh, also claimed to have found a few more pieces of a second Piltdown Man find that helped to support the claim of, oh, okay, yeah, this was a, a, a ancient human that lived here. Now, the classic story, sort of the quick, pithy version that you'll hear, especially from disingenuous sources trying to use this story to discredit the science, is that Piltdown Man was presented and all the scientists said, hooray! evolution Mm -hmm. we proved it transition that's not true there were a lot of people who were skeptical of this find early on uh especially outside of britain people in america in in the in north america people around europe uh particularly one of the most common 
criticisms levied at this was by people who argued that the jaws and the teeth were from a different animal than the cranial pieces, yep. the parts of the brain case. That these men had perhaps accidentally... Associated. Associated, exactly. Um, some of there are even some quotes from people outright saying the brain case pieces you have are human and the jaw is chimpanzee. Yep. And they were surprisingly close. <laughs> but the fossils were kept in the British Museum. Very few scientists actually got to look at them. So there were few opportunities to study them in depth. And a lot of other authority figures, scientists in high places, supported the find. Especially in England, where they were all very excited about having found it. Yeah. And it became popular in the press. Articles written about it, books written about it, exhibits. It showed up in exhibits around the world. It was mentioned in the Scopes trial once again. Oops. So Piltdown Man quickly rose to fame. And again, we're seeing that trend. It came at the right time to fit some of the ideas people had, played into ego. Yeah. Which sort of helped people accept it. Not a lot of communication, right? The fossils were kind of kept locked away a bit. People didn't really get a chance to see them. There were a lot of factors leading into this. And then the 20s happened. And then the 30s <laughs> happened. And this is my favorite part of the Piltdown Man story, right? Because the classic story here is Piltdown Man was a hoax, and it was 40 years before it was discovered, which is true. Piltdown Man remained in the scientific consciousness a legitimate fossil for 40 years. Yeah. Which is insane. But one thing that you don't necessarily often hear about, uh, especially once again, when this story is being used against scientists. As a weapon. As a weapon. Is one of the reasons people started getting suspicious of Piltdown Man is that in the 20s and 30s, we started finding more ancient humans. In Asia and in Africa, the Australopithecines were discovered. Uh, finds like Peking Man, you know, famous Homo erectus, things like that. All those wonderful fossils we talked about in episode 18. And they started to paint this wonderful picture of the trends in human evolution and what features, how they came together to create the human as we know them today. And Piltdown Man did not fit. Yeah, it wasn't matching up right. Piltdown Man had a big skull and an ape-like jaw, but all the other fossils we were finding showed that the jaw became human-like before the brain case got large. Mm -hmm. The actual evolutionary picture was pushing Piltdown Man off to the side. Yep. Of course, that's not a, the difference early on. Some people were even skeptical about the new finds because of Piltdown <sighs> Yep. They were like, well, that doesn't fit what we know. <laughs> so I... It, but eventually... In the early 50s, uh, a handful of scientists finally went in and tested Piltdown. And they said, you know what? Let's take a close look. Uh, publications in 1953 and 55, 40-plus years after the, discover the, quote, discovery of Piltdown Man. Uh, work by Kenneth Oakley, Wilfred E. LaGrosse Clark, and Joseph Weiner chemically dated the fossils using fluoride and nitrogen techniques, which were not available when the fossil was first found, and found them to be centuries old. Not 500,000, but more like 500. Yep. 
They also found that the bones had been stained to make them look like fossils in that part of the world. The jaws and teeth had been filed and broken and reshaped to fit the pieces together better. <laughs> in some cases, associated fossils were planted near these fossils to support their authenticity. The cricket bat, the big piece of bone that had carvings in it, was found to have been carved with a steel knife. <laughs> in the early to mid-50s, the fossil was revealed to be a hoax. After 40 years, they said, yeah, this is a fake. We now know that the jaws and teeth came from uh, an orangutan. Yeah, it did. Modern orangutan. And the cranial pieces came from two or more medieval human skeletons that were selected to show a big brain case and then put together with this fossil. Yep. Uh, also, apparently, some of the bones, the, the spaces inside the bones were filled with gravel <laughs> and then puttied and painted over to make them feel heavier. Oh, wow. Like, this was not like a quick job. Someone yeah. spent a lot of time and effort to create this Piltdown Man fossil. And what's really fascinating is because it took 40 years of misdirection before we discovered it. We don't know who did it. Nope. Now, the general consensus is that it was probably Dawson himself. Yeah. Uh, there's been some publications that support that. Uh, Dawson died in 19... Oh, I don't remember. But it was very shortly. I think it was 1916. So he died very shortly after Piltdown Man became a thing. Um, but there doesn't appear to have been any money in this. Yeah. And I guess maybe it was just for fame. Maybe this was just, I want to discover something cool. The world may never know. Uh, other names have been suggested as accomplices, uh, although not all of them are well supported, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, ah. who wrote Sherlock Holmes and The Lost World. Uh, that's not very well supported, but the name has been banned. I, I have I've heard those connected before very briefly. Yeah. So Piltdown Man is a fascinating story. There's way more detail. We'll put links in the in the blog post as usual if you want to learn more about it. Uh, also, probably the most common story thrown at paleontologists by anti-evolution folks trying to say, hey, they claimed this transition fossil and it was a fake. Especially since it, th this is kind of the nightmare scenario where it is a detailed and at least convincingly enough made fake that dealt with a very popular and controversial subject of human evolution. And then due to various scenarios remained a, at least, you know, unconfirmed fake. It remained somewhat viable for decades. Mm -hmm. Like th yep. this is kind of the worst situation a fake could could really be expected to have to cause yeah and it, it it impacted science yes it did like people were misdirected for years by this thing i mean it likely slowed things down with as you said people referencing it in lieu of actual fossils yep. you know it confused things it's i mean it's the same thing as uh you know people who get frustrated when pluto got redesignated as a planetoid <laughs> It, as a dwarf planet. As a dwarf planet. is It's not so much that it's we did anything to Pluto, but that now all of these, all this knowledge has to be rewritten in people's brains. And so, like, 
this was fake information that caused that sort of situation. Yeah. Now, my the 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 silver lining here, of course, and sort of the comfort that one might take from this is that this a demonstrated the importance of being careful. Yeah. B wonderful proof of concept for up to date techniques in dating and testing. (laughs) And it was proven wrong by better data. Yes. Like this came out when we didn't know very much about human evolution and we learned more and that's what cast it out. Mm -hmm. Knowledge. We improved. And it can have that effect of once bitten, twice shy. Like now we've seen the potential dangers of fake fossils. Now we know to look for them. And speaking of which... This last story is probably the most poignant only because it's fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in, I have met some of the people who were involved in this story. Yeah, I remember when it happened, clearly. This is the story of Archaeoraptor, Woo-hoo! the fake dinosaur. And it's of course it's a dinosaur, and of course it was a human, because these are the, the ones that get all hyped up. Yeah, no, no one's gonna... You're not gonna make you know, worldwide news by faking, you know... A, a, a ancient arthropod yeah that's that's not gonna break the internet yeah <laughs> dinosaurs and people those break the internet so early on i mentioned the problem with fakes in china over the last few decades we have discovered that china is a gold mine of beautifully preserved fossil dinosaurs mm-hmm. and this has led to uh, a, you know forgeries and fakes coming out of there building off of that fame the late 1990s, in the wake of the discovery of Cenoceropteryx, the first confirmed feathered non-bird dinosaur out of this part of the world. So people were on the lookout and excited about finding more feathered dinosaurs. This led to the creation of a... Now this isn't... Not so much like Piltdown Man, where they were modern bones passed off as fossil. These were authentic fossils conglomerated yeah one of those chimeras we talked about yep uh some i think a farmer uh, most likely in china passed it off to a dealer who had it smuggled into the united states always a good good sign yeah great start (laughs) where it appeared in an auction in tucson arizona in february of 1999 this fossil caught the eye of a couple of local dinosaur enthusiasts, paleo artists, uh, who were involved in a local dinosaur museum, Stephen and Sylvia Cherkis. I think that's how you pronounce that name. They were excited because the fossil had a dinosaur-like tail, right? Velociraptor-like tail, but the body was very much like a modern bird. So it appeared to be a wonderful transition, an unusual combination of features. So they got some help. And purchased it for $80,000, hoping to uh, get it studied and then put it on display. They wanted it to be like pièce de résistance in their museum. Mm -hmm. And they started getting other people involved. Uh, Famous paleontologist from Canada, Phil Currie. They invited him on to be a co-author. They would eventually invite uh, other scientists from around the country and around the world. Uh, They got in touch with Xu Xing from China. Because they decided, they ultimately decided that after this was studied, it should go back to China. Yeah. Which is the correct decision. Yes. This was smuggled out of the country. This is stolen. Bring it back. Curie also reached out to a contact of his at National Geographic. Because the fossil was exciting, he reached out to Chris Sloan, who worked at Nat Geo, 
and said, hey, you might want to keep an eye on this because this might be fun to write about. Yeah. So the plan was not only to study the fossil, get it published, but to have a have it be part of this National Geographic article about feathered dinosaurs, which is really cool. So far, so good. But as the year progressed and the scientists gradually sort of got a chance to actually look at the fossil, they started to get concerned because the pieces didn't all seem to go together. The feet were a slab and counter slab of each other, Mm -hmm. which means Mm -hmm. that... So if you picture like a leaf pressed between layers and you peel the layers and you have the leaf is impressed on both sides one of those is the slab and one of them is the counter slab the feet of this fossil were it was the same foot yep slab and counter slab uh they eventually brought it down to texas where it was ct scanned uh by tim rowe who found it to be in as many as 88 pieces that were conglomerated together these were raisin sort of alarm bells this fossil had been tampered with which is obvious yeah it was smuggled out it was you know, this has a questionable history. Yeah, there, there's. It's not a complete surprise that s- something underhanded has gone on with this fossil, right? Or that it was something. This it was broken. Someone has glued it together. Hmm. Uh, but that the they were noticing that the tail maybe didn't really seem to match up with the rest of the thing. There was some arguing, and the leads on this study, the Cherkesses, the ones who had originally bought it convinced it sounds like from the report which we'll link in the blog post uh basically convinced everyone to press on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's not worry about it we don't know that this isn't necessarily reliable we want to get this published and so they went on to submit it uh in august they submit they wrote up a paper they submitted it to nature and they submitted it to science separately because nature rejected it and science rejected it and part of the reason that it got rejected, one, is because they were trying to push. They wanted it to get turned around quickly so that it would correspond with the National Geographic article. Yep. Which is a little bit of a questionable thing to do. But, S- I, you know. Slight when, ulterior motives. Right. But when it works out okay, you know, it can be done. Well, if you if you don't know that you're working with a f- f- hoax, that seems like a... If we can do this, why wouldn't we? You know, kind of right. scenario. And it sounds like the editor of Nature was all for it, but didn't have time to get peer review. Yeah. It was like, I would do that, but I can't get peer review in that time. Uh, it was rejected from science because there were questions about the fossil. And that's key. This fossil was never published. Yeah. The name Archaeoraptor should not appear in italics. It should appear in quotation marks. <laughs> not an official named published fossil scientifically doesn't exist yep but amidst all this discussion and all this arguing with the scientists kind of getting iffy about it some of them kind of going all right i'm not gonna uh for some reason no one told national geographic about all these questions uh it sounds like from the report everyone was kind of like oh well that person's gonna do it yeah and then no one did it so in the meantime Sloan at National Geographic got super excited because everything was going really well with this fossil and convinced the editor to make the new fossil the star of the piece. Yeah, the the headliner. The headliner. And it was supposed to come out around the time the fossil was published, but the fossil wasn't published. And then National Geographic made the kind of dubious decision to publish the piece anyway on an 
unconfirmed, unpeer-reviewed find, and to put the name in the article. So in National Geographic in November, uh, Archaeoraptor Liaoningensis was unveiled to the public. Big headline news. Uh, some scientists at the time actually commented, like, you shouldn't have put the name in here. Mm-hmm. Because you can't name a fossil in a popular magazine. That's not how it's supposed to happen. It should have been in the technical paper. So that already made people kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then Xu Sheng, back in China, came across the counter slab of the tail. Someone had found the t- the other half of the tail of Archaeoraptor, but it wasn't attached to an Archaeoraptor. It was attached to a regular old dromaeosaur, which was kind of the clincher that somebody put the tail of one animal on the body of another animal and passed it off as a fake. The smoking gun. Yes. This, now, you mentioned the nightmare scenario of a fossil <laughs> being faked. This is not as extreme as Piltdown Man, obviously. This was unveiled as a fake within a year. Yeah, this didn't have as much of an effect. Yep. By the early 2000s, Nat Geo published a retraction. Uh, this There was an investigation launched into figuring out how this happened. Say like what, what was all the confusion? But man, is this embarrassing. Yep. Like National Geographic. It's embarrassing for the publication. It's embarrassing for all the scientists. I have personally met and spoken with one of the scientists here who uh, a, a number of the people involved in this have reported like this was a huge mistake. I'm so sorry. I was like Stephen Cherkis, I believe, has said that it was a boneheaded mistake. Like, yeah, people uh, obviously lots of mistakes were made. We're not here to point fingers. But there was miscommunication. Yes. There were hasty decisions. This was science not done very properly. Yeah, motives were getting muddled on all fronts. Yes. And in the end, it was a big fiasco. The fake dinosaur. And unfortunately, was another transition fossil. Yeah. That turned out to not be real. And so this is probably the second most common fossil that you'll read about on the list of fossil hoaxes that disprove evolution because it was supposed to be this cool dinosaur bird link and now there is a bright side to this story uh number one learning experience yep uh the the scientists have been quoted also as saying that at that time they didn't realize not as an excuse but just as an explanation no one really realized just how bad the problem of faked fossils in that area was going to be. Yeah, this is this kind, of was kind of the brought it to light. Yes, exactly. Nowadays, we're super careful. <laughs> like you, there are re- people who are like, I when you see a fossil from this part of the world, you have to know what you're looking for. And you take the steps to confirm because this is just such a possibility that you're getting something that has been altered well this is the paleontology version of when people you know read an instruction label for a product and the instruction label has like five steps that you're like what why do i have to do those five steps it's because something happened at some point (laughs) where it went wrong usually minor stuff like uh we people came and returned the paint because it wasn't working because they were doing it wrong so we had to add a more specific step to it but Yep. At times, now it's because one time we almost published on a fake fossil 
you now have to CT scan, blah, 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 you know, chemical test every yeah, single yeah. one you get from that area. Which, it you know, should have been being done in the first place. But it's it, it there, it's not an excuse, but it's understandable, right? It it fit what we were looking for at the time. There's almost certainly more than a little bit of ego going on here with we want to get this published. We want to get the the popular story out there and a time where people just didn't realize how much danger there was to be on the lookout for. Yeah. Well, and the mentality of you know people falling for hoaxes being stupid is the same reason that I dislike, you know, public pranks that that are so popular on the internet sometimes where it's I I tricked a person with whatever the prank ends up being, you know, the the boat that shapes like the alligator head or you know the real remote control boat yeah, that yeah. whatever it might be and people always like to laugh at the people tricked by that, but if I'm not expecting a hoax, once again, if I'm not looking for it, it's really easy to hide it from me, you know. Yep. If I'm, you know, suggesting that I should have seen it coming means I should be suspicious all the time, which is what these things do, which, yes, is safer, but it's also really depressing <laughs> that yes. we have to do that. Like, that's a real bummer <laughs> that yeah. because there are people out there so blatantly lying about such important things, we now have to be super duper extra careful. And it's so... It, I, I never look at these people and are like, well, what idiots? How did you not know? Okay, of course we know now because we can yep. look back at it. But if you've never seen one like that before, and this is a detailed, well done, you know, yes. crafted fake, then of course you're not going to immediately go, whoa, something's wrong here. You, oh, it's kind of weird, but you know, yeah. weird's fine. So one of the bright sides learning experience yep we are at least in theory way more careful now <laughs> the other thing is the two parts of archaeoraptor turned out to be new species <laughs> <laughs> so the the tail the dinosaur that the tail belonged to ended up becoming being named Microraptor. oh cool and the front of the body uh, be, uh was yanornis which is an ancient bird it, it was published in a paper that was titled archaeoraptor's better half <laughs> <laughs> that's a fantastic title so some good came out of the fossil uh in, in in the form of some new creatures they it did eventually advance science so take that hoaxers take the and this is another one of those where it this is probably forged by someone trying to make money yeah and then through a series of unfortunate events made it into the public sphere made it into the scientific sphere, caused some people some real shame, uh, caused a lot of confusion. These are the three sort of big famous stories. They're not the only ones. There are other there are other cases of, of fossil frauds. We'll put a bunch of links for cool information in the blog post. But these are the big three, and it's tempting to put all of our attention on these and be like, oh, fakes happen. And they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they are very rare. It is very rare for a fake to really get in the way of science. And at least in theory, we're getting better and better at keeping an eye out for them. There will probably be fakes in the future. Uh, hopefully nothing Piltdown Man-esque. Hopefully yeah. nothing like Archaeoraptor. Hopefully everyone's learning about things as we go. Yeah. And in the meantime, we're, we're on the lookout for them. 
they they pervert and pollute paleontology but they don't destroy it they're they're a nuisance but they're not we we can overcome that if we're yes. careful and 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 you know the exceptions don't make the rule uh like the early example of construction items failing i, I always think of this sort of stuff is it's it's really easy to point at these and go so h- how reliable is paleontology really it's like oh well, yeah but cars mess up all the time <laughs> well they yeah still it's the drive other those you say piltdown man and you say wow it was a hoax like right but the other 500 known ancient human fossil individuals aren't and and part of that is the human brain is wired like the way our brain catalogs memories we always weight negative memories and experiences heavier than good ones. Yes, absolutely. Because there's there's much more to lose in a negative experience. You know, the ultimate being you die. Right. <laughs> and and a good experience, you can have the best experience in the world. You're not going to have a second life. You know, you're not going to you know be like, oh, I got a one up. I can I can afford to die twice now. <laughs> That's not how life works. So you know, you always weight the negative experience more. And that goes for things like this as well. We're always going to remember those bad examples. No matter how few they are, they're always going to stand out more than they really statistically should, but they will. But they are good tales to keep in mind. They are good stories to to have on hand. They're uh, lessons from the past, uh, lessons for future paleontologists. And we hope that you have learned something, dear listeners out there. But we're going to wrap it up. Yep, this has been a fun trip down uh, this this rabbit hole. And there's there's so much more to talk about. As usual, if there's more you want to hear on this or any subject, let us know. Send us requests. We still take requests all the time. Our request list is enormous, but don't let that dissuade you. Yeah. We choose topics from all up and down the list. Thanks again to Cheryl for inspiring this episode. Yeah, this was this was an interesting and fun one. Thanks to you for listening. Keep an eye out for episode 50, which is coming up in a fortnight. And then Woo-hoo. the next one will be a fortnight after that. And ad infinitum. <laughs> Check out the blog post. We'll put up pictures of some of these, which is uh, which will be a lot of fun. Especially, I'll see if I can get a bunch of pictures of the Iconoliths, Beringers, Lugensteine. Oh, some of them are so fun. They're, just, they're hilarious. They're awesome. Follow us on the social medias. Follow us on, support us on Patreon if you'd like. Don't forget to submit your questions for that Q&A for the end of the year. We'll put that link again in the episode description along with the blog post link. I think that's all the stuff. Yeah, let us know what you want to know. Let us know that, what you want. That's all I, that's all, that's all I can think of. I think we're, wrap, we're good to wrap it up. All right. I don't have a clever sign-off here, as usual. Once again, 49 episodes in, no sign-off phrase. Psych. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, for the fake episode. <laughs> gotcha. All, all of it was live. We made it April all Fools. up. <gasps> we David's a writer. April Fools. <laughs> Man, that would have been a better time to do this. Yeah. All right, guys. Don't listen to this until April first. Skip to this part. <laughs> don't, and then save happy, this. <laughs> happy April Fools. But wait, it's December. You're right. April Fools. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. 
Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. Made you look.